When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Kia ora, for Eyewitness and RNZ, I'm Justin Gregory. 14 June 1984, National Party Prime Minister Sir Robert Muldoon calls a snap election. RNZ's Richard Griffin is there, and he asks a now famous question. doesn't give you much time to run up to an election, Prime Minister. The Prime Minister's reply is also memorable. doesn't give my opponents much time to run up to an election, does it? For several months, Sir Robert had been in control of a polarised parliament. The government he led had just a one-seat majority, and when National MP Marilyn Waring announced that she would vote against the government on certain issues, Muldoon decided he could not or would not continue on that basis. Labour Party leader David Longey had earlier cheekily offered to take over. Muldoon's reply was to the point. He's a buffoon, and uh, we're talking about the serious business of governing this country in very difficult times. Exactly a month later, New Zealand decided that the serious business of government was the business of someone else. Behind me, we have a Prime Minister. The Labour Party had won. David Longy laid out his plans for the interim period before being sworn in. Tomorrow morning, I am asking Jeff Palmer to come up here to speak to him about the transition. Then we're going to have a bit of a rest and on Monday we'll work. A bit of a rest was not what he or anyone else in Parliament got. For many months prior to the election, the Reserve Bank had been warning Sir Robert that an overvalued New Zealand dollar was vulnerable to speculation. While the Labour opposition didn't have a clear policy, it was widely believed that they favoured devaluation. And when the snap election was called, a run on the dollar duly took place in anticipation of a Labour win. Millions of dollars flowed out of New Zealand and the Reserve Bank used up almost all of its foreign currency reserves. The country was in danger of defaulting on its loan repayments. On Sunday morning, 15 July, the day after the election that removed National from power, Treasury officials asked Sir Robert Muldoon for a meeting. He refused. They warned him that the foreign exchange could not open for trading the next day without an immediate devaluation. Muldoon replied that they could close the exchange if they liked, but there would be no devaluation. Monday, 16th of July. Sir Robert rings David Longy, asking for a joint press conference announcing that they would not devalue the dollar. Longy says he needs to hear from Treasury first, and after being briefed, he is convinced the devaluation needs to go ahead. And here's where the trouble starts. No one tells Muldoon. On the news that night, a frustrated Longy, thinking Muldoon had been briefed, claims the Prime Minister was refusing his advice. A furious Muldoon, who had not heard anything from anyone, goes on TV with reporter Richard Harmon and fires back with those fateful words. I am not going to devalue as long as I'm Minister of Finance. One more time. I am not going to devalue as long as I'm Minister of Finance. And just to make it clear... If Mr Longy has got any sense at all... And up until this moment on this thing, he has not displayed it. He will come out with me and say, we will not devalue the New Zealand dollar. He only has to say that tonight. And I can assure you that everything else will fall into place. 
David Longy's reply is fierce. We have now reached the point where there is a constitutional crisis. This Prime Minister, outgoing, beaten, has in the course of one television interview tried to do more damage to the New Zealand economy than any statement ever made. It is time for the National Party to take steps in the interests of this country's economic security to see that he does not exercise that power because clearly now he has passed the capacity to exercise a judgment in the interests of New Zealand. Someone in the National Party did take steps. His name was Jim McClay. He was 39, a lawyer and the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand. My wife was at home and she, she rang me and said, you, you should listen to this, and she literally held the telephone up to the TV. So I heard, uh, heard what had been said. And I was astonished, in my view, even if it disagreed, an outgoing government uh, had to act on the advice of an incoming administration. McClay had been in Parliament since 1975, but had been Muldoon's number two for just a few short months. Sir Robert described him as a tremendous bloke, for his age. That just about sums it up, I guess. It was a very correct relationship at that time. We were not particularly compatible spirits, but we could work together and we did. It wasn't difficult, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't super friendly. We weren't drinking buddies or anything like that. In the footage of Muldoon's slurred speech announcing the snap election, you can see Jim McClay standing behind him. But he couldn't back up his leader's refusal to devalue. I knew we had an economic problem on our hands. I knew that officials, because Sir Robert had told Cabinet, I knew that officials were also advising the incoming government. So I assumed that any initiative would, would be at their behest. Senior Nats Hugh Templeton, who had just lost his seat in the election, Jim Bolger and Bill Birch arrive in McClay's office. 55-year-old Templeton had run there from his home nearby. There was unanimity that if he was saying that he would not do what the incoming government wanted, then that was improper, that would require some action on the part of his colleagues, and uh, hopefully we could turn him around on that issue. Then we had to decide, well, now, what is the constitutional position? Is there, in fact, a convention that we must do what the incoming government has asked? The answer was no, because the issue had never come up before. A kind of gentleman's agreement meant outgoing governments had always honoured the wishes of the incoming one. But legally, if Sir Robert wanted to ignore David Longey, he could. Maclay hurriedly puts together a constitutional argument to the contrary, citing a recent similar situation in Australia. But it was a bluff. There was no convention. And as it became clear that there was only one real course of action... All eyes in the room turned to the deputy PM. I would confront Sir Robert at the earliest possible opportunity. I would tell him what we believed should be done, and that if he didn't, if he ref still refused, I would then go to the Governor-General. I would inform him that Sir Robert had lost the confidence of at least his senior colleagues, and that uh, in the circumstances he should appoint me as the Prime Minister. I would give an undertaking that I would only act on the wishes of the incoming government, my political career was certainly almost inevitably, in fact, I had decided that if, it, if events did unfold in the way that I've just outlined, that I would then say when inevitably there would be some sort of spill in the National Party caucus over the leadership that I would not be a candidate for the leadership and I would not uh, accept the leadership under any circumstances. What I didn't want was anybody suggesting that I had done this uh, out of some sort of personal political motivation and the only way I could do that was by taking myself completely out of the game as it were. 
The die was cast. It wasn't like their other options were great. One of which was that we would all resign uh, and leave Sir Robert on his own. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is that the, he would then be the government uh, until the Labour government was sworn in the following week. Uh, at that point, we then tried to get hold of Sir Robert. We rang his home, rang, rang, rang. There was never any answer. It turned out that uh, Lady Muldoon had unhooked the telephone. She was just getting sick of the telephone calls. Uh, and he was watching Hill Street Blues. Tuesday, 17 June. Maclay, who had not slept, arrives early at the Beehive and asks to see the Prime Minister. The showdown between the urbane Auckland lawyer and our most dominant politician in living memory was on. They'd usually pick a small issue and argue with you about it. And once he thought he had dealt with that, he would then use that to basically to discredit the wider argument as a whole. It's a pretty valid debating technique. He was also a bully, and he could bully people into, an, into his point of view. Could he bully you? He didn't. He was moving some papers across his desk and didn't really look up initially as though he wasn't prepared to look me in the eye because I suspect he probably knew, what, in essence, why I was there. And I simply said that there was deep concern among his colleagues about what he had said the previous night and his refusal to accept the advice of the incoming government. He asked me who the colleagues were, and I ducked that question. Uh, I just didn't answer it. Um, I didn't want him calling those colleagues in one by one and dividing them off, as he had done with the colonel's coup of three years earlier. Uh, and then I told him that there was a constitutional convention that he must abide by the wishes of the incoming government. And you were bluffing. Yes. And he then told me that Longy was wrong, that he didn't know what he was doing, uh, that he didn't understand the economy. He, Muldoon, did understand it, uh, and he knew how the situation could be dealt with. He was quite unrealistic in that regard. Are we talking about a man who's totally in control of himself at this point? Is he still at his best as a politician? Short answer, no. I was first elected to Parliament when he won the 1975 election. So I'd seen Muldoon at his political height. Uh, this wasn't the same man. He'd lost a lot of that lustre a lot of that political um, skill. He was older, he was tired, but he was also very aggressive. I mean, the discussion, I, I've never related the full detail of the discussion and I'm, I'm not sure I ever will because it was very unpleasant. I still feel some embarrassment that the leader of my party, the person to whom I was Deputy Prime Minister, was um, behaving in this way. He wasn't accepting the result of the election. After 15 minutes, Muldoon backs down. Maclay rushes out a press release detailing what has become known as the caretaker convention. What I wanted was to freeze the situation. What I wanted was no argument about what the Cabinet had been told. The easiest way to do that was by press statement, just to simply say that this is the constitutional convention. You had another meeting later that day with Muldoon as well, I believe, an equally unpleasant meeting. Uh, possibly more so, actually. Ah. <laughs> uh, the Evening Post published a story that um, ministers had uh, all planned to resign and leave Muldoon to his own devices. So he asked me, is, is this what you planned to do? Is this the, was this the concern? I said, no, that wasn't what we were going to do. And then he said, well, what were you planning to do? So I told him that I, if he had not agreed, I would have gone to the Governor-General, I would have asked him to dismiss Sir Robert and uh, to appoint me and that I would give these undertakings. And Hugh Templeton in his book basically says, well, that was the moment when Muldoon started to go after Maclay. 
No good deed ever goes unpunished. When Jim McClay replaced Robert Muldoon as leader of the National Party, a bitter Muldoon sniped at him continuously from the backbenches. Two years later, McClay was rolled by Jim Bolger, who had supported him back in July 84. Muldoon returned to the front bench, and McClay retired from politics. Jim McClay's caretaker convention is now a part of the official cabinet manual and has been adopted in several Commonwealth countries. If you want to read it, you can go to rnz.co.nz forward slash eyewitness. Remarkably, hardly a word has changed from that first draft when an alarmed Maclay deliberately coloured outside the lines to write what is now an essential piece of our constitution. And he says if he had to, he'd do it all over again. If I can use the streaker's defence, it uh, seemed like a good idea at the time. You've been listening to Eyewitness on RNZ National. This episode used additional audio from the 1994 TVNZ documentary Five Days in July by Richard Harmon. If you enjoyed this story, please write a review or rate us on iTunes. You can subscribe or listen to every Eyewitness podcast on iTunes or at radionz.co.nz forward slash series. And while you're there, we'd invite you to dip into any of the other RNZ podcasts. Eyewitness was written and presented by me, Justin Gregory, and engineered by Rangi Powick. Kakite anō. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.